George Forenzi sat down with moderator Fritz Ertel for a one-on-one interview in January of 1985. I'm Hope Clark, a member of the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Good afternoon. My name is Fritz Ertel, and it is my pleasure to uh, introduce you to George Ferenc, who will be speaking this afternoon on the subject of directing the plays of Sam Shepard. Um, Mr. Ferenc is the co-founder of the Impossible Ragtime Theater and Cement, who is currently working with, uh, has directed notable productions of Dynamo and the Harry Ape by Eugene O'Neill, uh, In the Jungle of the Cities by Bertolt Brecht, Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare, uh, the Shep and Rep series in 1979, which included Cowboy Mouth, Tooth of Crime, Mad Dog Blues, Action, there's one more, Melodrama Play? Yes. Uh, the Tooth of Crime at La Mama last year, uh, and most recently, The Shepherd set at La Mama, which will be playing again at Syracuse, opening January 18th and running for five weeks. Uh, in The Shepherd set is Suicide and B-flat, not Mad Dog Blues. Uh, what is the second show? Angel City. Angel City and Backbog Beast Bay. Thank you. Uh, currently, Mr. Friends is directing Mad Dog Blues at NYU, opening early March, and a play called Impact by Juan Samsul Alan, which will be opening January 30th at Intel. Um, let's start with music. <laughs> Why not? Um, the plays of Sam Shepard, particularly the ones before uh, Curse of the Starving Class, uh, were written to be performed with music, and uh, I think a lot of your productions actually have made music the focal point. I think of uh, Tooth of Crime with the caged rock band, uh, the in-concert approach to uh, Cowboy Mouth, and uh, most recently the uh, collaboration with Max Roach in the Shepherd sets. Uh, can, you, uh, can you talk a bit about what music means to you in the theater in particular in the uh, in relation to the plays of Sam Shepard and these three plays in particular? Um, when I first went to Syracuse Stage a couple of years ago to do Tooth of Crime, I was kind of amazed to find out that in 10 years there, we were going to be uh, opening on New Year's Eve, and it would be the 10-year anniversary of Syracuse Stage. And Syracuse Stage, if you don't know, is a, you know, it's a Lord House, and, and it's... So nice. they got a nice deal up there, real nice, and they function for about 250 miles around, and they, it's a cultural center for central New York. And in their 10 years of doing plays, they had, uh, I found out that they had never done a play with music, live music. Um, they had done the classics, they had done everything, but they had never put a live musician on the stage before. And, um, and except for they had like a, 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 you know, one of those package deals of uh, Games at Sea that came in once in the mid-70s. And I found this rather amazing from my own point of view. So we had a five-piece rock band and we turned the amp up and, uh, and, and our first week we, uh, it was terrifying for the people at Syracuse. 
They um, <laughs> throw in the programs at the stage. They had subscribers tearing up the tickets. And they had more walkouts than they had in the history of the theater. Um, and, uh, and I was saying, well, turn the music up more. It's not loud enough. <laughs> it's not loud enough. By the time that we closed in Syracuse, um, we had set all the box office records for the city of Syracuse ever. We had editorials in the newspapers, and we had groupies that were coming in like... Uh, uh, not just droves, they're repeating and they're chanting the lines along, like that movie downtown, Rocky Horror. Rocky Horror Show. They were chanting the lines. And there were groupies that were literally rushing the stage and taking busloads down here. But they were young. And what happened was a very strange thing, and it wasn't all that intentional, but there was like a changing of skin in terms of 10 years of, of people who had been supporting uh, Syracuse stage. And, but there was like a new audience coming in. And they didn't have any problem with the loud music. They didn't have any problem with the lyrics or with, in fact, they seemed to uh, nourish off the fact that there was a live band there on stage. Um, and, and, and part of it was, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s. I grew up on rock and roll, so it was no big deal, except my mom used to say, turn down the music, it's too loud. And I'd want it, I'd want it more and more. When I came to New York uh, for a long time, I suppose like a lot of us, I went around, you know, saying, I hope you like me. Oh, I'd like to be like Marshall, or I'd like to be like these people. And then for fun, I was going to see rock concerts, and, uh, or going to hear jazz. But as simple as it sounds, it took a long time for me to realize that the sensuality that there was in music was an important ingredient for theater. And, uh, and, and, and once I became more aware of that, I found myself uh, using music more and more, and finding myself talking with musicians and seeing how they approach things. Max Roach, of course, um, had an incredible impact on what we did recently in La Mama because, for one thing, he's relatively new to the theater. And, um, and yet he has a tremendous sensibility regarding the dynamic of audience to stage. And so uh, and it was something that I was interested in, too. When I was going to those rock concerts and I'd see lighting for the Boomtown Rats, like I never saw on any stage. I mean, eight follow-spot operators working in perfect choreographed movement and doing magic on stage. Um, I realized it was more than just taking the music and putting it involved with the show, but rather there was a dynamic there involved that was much more, um, not much more, but it was based on this relationship like we're having right now, rather than if the two of us had a conversation and there was the fourth wall there that the dynamic was uh, in the rock concert or in the music was a direct relationship between the stage and the audience. And, and I found that exhilarating to work with. And of course, it made new demands on the performers because that's what they literally became. It was a set of actors acting out a scene. They became performers, performing like they would in a rock concert or perhaps in a jazz setting. So... Uh, so constantly it wasn't just the music, but it was also finding and developing performers that would attack a piece, not from a psychological point of view, but rather from a performance musically orientated point of view. And uh, many of our rehearsals that took place uh, took place in which we would say, well, let's do a monologue as if, as if it was a jazz riff or as if you were performing the song without giving any attention to what the psychological ramifications of that would be. I've never met Sam Shepard. I've never written him. I've never talked to him. Until very recently, I didn't even know what he looked like because I didn't see him in the movies. 
and uh, over the years I've kept quite a distance from him. But, um, but recently, because I've been asked to talk about him more and more, I've read some articles on this and that, and uh, in terms of research, I find that he's, uh, he's a drummer and a musician. And, uh, and I worked on La Mama a lot, and Ellen would say that he would go down there and just beat on the drums, get himself up into a sweat, and then sit down at the typewriter in that sense of trying to find a rhythm that would, that would dictate the criteria of judgment in terms of his plays. Um, of course, Max was amazed. He said, this is, this is a musician's playwright. He, he, uh, he taught me much about, especially suicide and B flat, because he would say that he's talking our language, he's talking our language. And I'd say, well, what does he mean, Sam, here? And he says, well, here's what he means. But you have to understand, George, it's outside the box. What well, jazz musicians is, he's playing outside the box. Until you get outside the box, you don't really know. You can't really understand. And that there's always two ways to do anything. We were being interviewed by uh, some magazine, and they said, Max, what's the... Um, what does suicide in B-flat mean to you as a musician? Just the title. And he said, well, it's real easy. It's a suicide and it happens in an apartment, number B. You know, flat is no word for B. <laughs> and, and no matter what time you would ask Max, he'd give you some other time. He, it was that thing of the variable. And, um, and it wasn't that he was just playing around or giving a straight answer, but it was always that looking for the alternative. No matter what we did in rehearsal, then the next day we'd try to do it the exact opposite way. It became, uh, it became quite an investment in not only time and energy, but we found ourselves talking in terms and using vocabulary that was part of, of the music world in terms of resonance and things like that. Also, in what I consider one of the uh, prime examples of creative producing, when I saw Ellen Stewart about doing... Well, a couple years ago, she said, George, you've got to do something from the heart, something you really want to do something that moves you that has two characters in one set. And I said, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? So I said, okay. So we, we did a show called Dumb Name Non Sacre Sondre by Michelle Tremblay. And we did in the annex. And we had a good time. And she says, okay, now next year I want you to do something you really want to do. And I said, okay, but this is going to cost you lots of money. <laughs> and she said, oh. And about a week later she called me up and said, that show that's going to cost me lots of money. Tell me about it. So when I was speaking to her about what I would need, I need a company of nine actors, all the actors would be playing two roles, we'd need an extended rehearsal period, et cetera, et cetera. I said, listen, we'd like to have the musicians in, you know, a week before we open, because it's going to be a little bit more involved. And she said something that changed the whole nature of what we did, which she said, no, you're not going to have them for a week before. You're going to have them for two weeks in the rehearsal hall before you even get to the theater. And Max is going to be there from day one on the piano. And and we'll get the violins and the basses and everything you need from day one. And it was her insistence of music taking a high entry point in terms of production values, which really invested the whole production in something very special, in the sense that we were concerned that the music not enhance the play, but rather inform it, and there's quite a difference. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a very strong commitment to the importance of the music in terms of understanding the plays. And once you open up that door, then it's like a whole, whole lot of other things going on. Um, uh, and this has been gradual. When we did the Shepherd and Rep Festival in 1979, it was a very bizarre situation. I couldn't get a job, and I was up at Columbia, 
and, um, and I gave a lecture on rock and roll theater. I used to walk out to students and say, I want to talk to you about the 21st century theater. You know, we're going to talk about rock and roll theater. And the kids loved it, and I made a living that way. <laughs> so then they, they hired me. They said, why don't you do some here? But it was just conceptual thought until that time. They said, we got no money. So that's all right. And uh, they said, we'll do it outside. And I said, great, we'll use uh, rock and roll and we'll use microphones. Well, we got $3,000. But you can rehearse in this little theater that's air-conditioned. So I went in, and there was a beautiful 150-seat theater. It was gorgeous, but it was covered with stuff because they hadn't used it in 10 years. I don't know how many people are familiar with uh, the Columbia Uprising of 1968, but it was led by the theater people. Mark Rudd was a playwright and a director, and, and that whole department was filled with all the radicals. In fact, it was the theater department which walked out in sympathy with the students. So when the thing died down, they just simply cut the department. <laughs> they just iced it. They got rid of it. And so the theater there was, hadn't been used. So I said, well, let's do it here. Let's do it in this theater. It's air-conditioned. We'll give the show away. And we'll take the money and invest it in music and in costumes. And we don't really need anything else, but we're concerned about the music. And then we ran an ad, and we said, you know, we're auditioning actors to do uh, five Sam Shepard plays in rep. Everybody will be in two or three shows. We'll give the shows away. And in return, we will pay you nothing. And uh, we'll give you a pool pass to Columbia. <laughs> we had over, I don't know how many thousands of people audition. David Lotz from Equity, at that time Equity was going crazy. And we did the shows and we gave them away and, and it started a whole momentum. But at that time we were using the microphones and, and just simply the rock and roll setup as our set. Cowboy Mouth, um, we did in fact in concert style in which there were just two actors at the microphones and they never looked at each other, but they were performing it right out to the audience. Sort of like Meatloaf and the girl did on uh, that one, you know, where they actually performed a, a kind of rock and roll piece. And it seemed to work very well. I found my own taste shifted more to jazz over the years, just simply because I started to get bored with rock and roll. And, uh, and so, consequently, when the whole idea of doing another Shepherd Festival came up, I found also that Sam had shifted from the days when he was a Patti Smith and the Holy Moly Rounders and things like that into, uh, into a jazz frame. And it was during the period that he wrote Suicide and Be Flat in Angel City. That club we wanted to use because it contained the blues. It had to do with Cajun blues in Louisiana. And uh, from our own knowledge of jazz and where its roots lie, we figured it was very, very important to have that as one of the meters. Plus, the play always fascinated me because of its use of voodoo and magic and things. So, so that's how we came to picking those particular three plays. But I never had an idea of how, uh, of how it would just bust wide open once Max entered the picture. Max Roach is uh, an elder gentleman, and he's from an old school in the sense that he's extremely disciplined, extremely... Uh, I mean, he used to scream at those musicians. Beat those drums. You're not the chumps. You're lousy. Get out of here. You don't know what you're doing. You know? And he'd yell at his musicians and yell at them and he'd drive them. And a disciplinarian gets up first thing in the morning and just comes in early and works and works and works. And, and with a lot of the modern actors, there's a kind of looseness involved in rehearsals too. And all of a sudden they were coming straight up against Max. That combination was very, very good because what Max did was give us a structure and a framework that helped create the ensemble based on how you might create a jazz ensemble. 
in which the structures and the limitations are very clearly set out, and once you understand those, you have a tremendous amount of freedom. I think one of the most amazing things about uh, the Shepherd Set's whole experience, two months of rehearsals and everything else, is that I didn't give any notes. I didn't block the show, and I didn't give any notes. And I'd never quite done anything like that before. We found ourselves taking notes from the actors. We found ourselves taking a tremendous amount of time to turn a negative, quote, note into a positive reaction that would lead the actor that way. Zuer asked him to play outside the box, to go out on a limb. And, um, and our approach was, 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 had to be much more radical than what you would normally put on a show. Because it's very tough for the actor to do. It's very scary stuff. Am I answering the question? Oh, very well. <laughs> I point for point. Beautiful, yeah. yeah. Wait, now you said that, uh, that, or you implied anyway, that just the, the presence of Max Roach and the way he works as a jazz musician uh, itself structured the rehearsal process. Um, could you talk about that some more? I mean, you, you're almost implying like you backed off and weren't directing the play. I know you don't mean that. Well, there's different ways to define directing. And... Um, when I was younger as a director, I used to talk a lot, give lots of notes and explain things. And I guess it's just part of the maturing thing where you say less and less and less, and you, and you pick your words more carefully. Um, it wasn't just simply Max. It wasn't simply Max itself. But when you're in a rehearsal hall and, and all day long, in places like this except smaller rooms, mm-hmm. you've got a drummer, a sax player, um, a bass, and a keyboard, and I mean, you're going for eight hours a day. Your head starts to ring. I mean, you move. Everybody's on a very high wire act, and so consequently, it was very important that our position be one of tremendous support. And whatever notes or any direction that we wanted to do was not taken from a negative point of view, but rather one that was consistently and supportive of the actor and in positive reinforcements. And if we wanted him to go this way instead of that way, we had to work to try to make them find, think they thought that up themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what freed a lot of them. It literally freed a lot of them to open them up. Um, it wasn't just simply Max's. Also, we were fortunate enough that the designers involved worked in somewhat the same mode. Um, one of them, Sally Lesser, is a costume designer, is here today. Sally doesn't draw. She didn't uh, predetermine any of the costumes, and rather she came to rehearsals and watched rehearsals and the costumes came out of rehearsals, many of them from the actor's suggestions. And, and the same with the lights and the other different mm-hmm. elements involved. So that, so that the sense of community and family was not one just in theory, but as, as much as we could was in practice. When we had some replacements for the show going up to Syracuse, the actors took part in the replacement audition and decision of what they were to do. And it was an attempt to to create as strong as ensemble as possible by giving them real responsibilities. We also didn't talk about what the play meant a lot, but every once in a while we had to get down. You know, people say, what What is this play about? Suicide B-flat. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that play, but when you read it, it can be rather confusing for an actor to translate into a viable kind of reality. Sheila Dabney would say, I got it all figured out. It's all in Niall's head. And then another actor would say, no, 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 it's a mysterious overture, so it's like selections. It's like uh, shorts from a movie, you know, a movie that you see coming in which they show you the highlights, and this is, this is what it meant. 
Another actor would say, no, 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 it's really about this. And for each one of them, it was true from that particular point of view. Um, uh, the actor who plays Niles uh, was able to hang on to the fact that you're either a convict or you're an artist. <laughs> I mean, but if you go to the obsessive behavior of either one, you could see how someone could go either way. They could be a great jazz musician, or they could end up in the, in the can, or dead, like uh, a lot of Max's friends from the old days were. And it's going to that going out, playing further and expanding, going outside of yourself that Max would continually reinforce with anecdotes about playing with Miles Davis or Coltrane or whatever all these people were. You'd say, yeah, this is what Charlie Parker would do. And, and, but there was that consistent thing of trying to reach beyond yourself and of going beyond yourself. And, 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 and if you'd play a particular monologue and, and it was marvelous, we'd say, yeah, but can you take it one further step? Can you, can you step going further than that and take it just a little bit more and, and work it this way or that way? And, and that was in line of, of a certain tradition in jazz, which is to go beyond yourself, which I guess is what we're saying in a certain way is that you're breaking outside that box or what the music says in terms of regular musicians have to play that music correctly. Right now, it was take that same music in a certain way and see what you can do to arc it or lift it or blemish it. And, and that the line in the play was not literal. It wasn't a case of finding the spine, but rather defining the character by the contradictions. Based melody. So. What does that do to the structure? Well, it redefines it in terms of music. So, so instead of the line, you know, the line of A to B to C, the but spine. But structured music as well. I mean, no. There's a structure to music, but sometimes it contradicts itself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you could have a melody line, you could have a bass line, in which, for the fun of it, composers have been known to simply visually change the notes so that whatever the motif is up here is played down here and it's opposite, just for the simple fun of it. But, visual music. Yeah, and it was a case of trying to define visual music also, which is tricky, but a lot of fun. Um, I don't know exactly how I've... Uh, I'm going into... Mad Dog will be my 11th production of Shepard. I'm not exactly sure how all those have accumulated, but I do know that, that um, uh, doing Shepard makes me feel high. In um, not high like dope or beer or something like that, but, but totally different because you have a sense of freedom. And, uh, and I think the hardest thing is those stage directions. Now, back about Beast we know Tony Barsha, who directed the, the original production at American Place. I would talk to Wynn about that production. We were very aware that those stage uh, directions that were in the script weren't even what they did at American Place. They weren't even there then. It was something that literally came about from the um, you know, published version. But yet that's the hardest hurdle, is to get past those stage directions in a certain way. Because um, uh, if you just read it, and if you can, kind of block them out, and then come back to them later, um, it helps to open the door rather than defining what the answer is. This is the way it has to be. Um, but rather, because it's very contagious. That sense of freedom becomes very contagious. And then suddenly, once the actors start to get it and everybody else involved, then the most outrageous things start to happen on stage. And they may not make sense in a literal way, but in another way they have, again, to use the word resonance. We did Cowboy Mouth, or pardon me, Tooth of Crime. We had three guys come out to sing Slips Away, and they're in tuxedo jackets. And... Uh, and I think it was on opening night that Sally, the costume designer, put red blood, you know, red paint on their shoulders. They all had it on their left shoulders. And so they all came out singing, and they're singing, and there's this red thing there. And the blood. 
uh, people said, oh, Jackson Pollock, got it. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, this, got it. Uh, Max said, that defines the music business. Um, I saw it the first time on opening night. <laughs> and I went, whoa, and it was electrifying. And I'm not exactly sure what it meant, but what it did is it meant many things because the image itself was so strong and spoke so, so eloquently in a very mysterious way which is part of it too. It's trusting the mystery of the plays, the same as one trusts the mystery of music. You've been talking a lot about freedom. Uh, isn't art thematically a lot of uh, Sam Shepard's plays also about freedom? Uh, I think of, uh, oh, in uh, Cowboy Mouth, the whole, the, the whole romanticism with the Johnny A story and all of that. Uh, well, it's a different type, but that particular thing... Um, I think, um, without getting into the nitty-gritty of it, uh, the thing that fascinates me about Sam is, is how he's influenced by the women in his life, um, which doesn't quite often appear on the page. And at that time, he was involved with Patti Smith, and in a very strong way. And Patti influenced him um, in terms of his literary awareness, because she was quite influenced by the French symbolists and things like that. And also, she was at the time involving herself with the type of rock and roll and poetry that is closer towards the suicidal impulses of someone like Jim Morrison. And so, so I see Cowboy Mouth much more as a suicide play. The Johnny Ace was not liberating, but rather in a certain way, because the whole monologue is Johnny Ace blew his brains out. Everybody jumped and chat, Johnny Ace blew his brains out. This is a guy who gave a rock concert and played Russian roulette in front of the audience for fun and then blew his brains out. And, um, and when the lobster man comes in and replaces Slim, you know, if you want to play with this lady, here's the game. Here's a gun, play Russian roulette, you can play with me. That's a pretty rough game. In fact, the last word of the play is caval, means escape. And a lot of the images have to do with a much more suicidal attack, um, the same as they do with uh, Tooth of Crime. After Patty, you don't see that. You don't see that appear, um, that suicidal bent. That mm -hmm. kind of self-destructive urge. Um, what about suicide and B-flat, though? Pardon? Well, what what's suicide, mean? what's interesting, is it, is it is a motif on suicide, but it takes a much more uh, intellectual kind of um, situation. Ellen, of course, when she came back from uh, South America, says, oh, I don't like uh, suicide. It's too talky-walky, too many words. <laughs> she says, you did that for the New York intellectuals. I know why, you know. <laughs> she said, that's what that's all about. Because it questions, it, 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 it becomes a question. Am I alive or am I dead? Is, you know, am I a convict or am I this? Um, what is life, what is not? And, and so consequently, it's the questions and the playing on a theme, variations on a theme, that, that, that um, kind of personifies that particular play. But um, but when but when you look at something like Backbog, which is written while you've seen Patty, and I believe the character of Grigri is definitely Patty. So you look at her poetry and things like that, and that's Patty Smith talking. Uh, the same as Crow and Tooth of Crime, for my money, Patty wrote. And you look at Cowboy Mouth and all those things. It's, it, the question isn't there. It's it's already made a commitment. There's already a commitment to uh, to looking at a very dark side of existence. Mm -hmm. What about the... Uh, oh, if you, when you read the, the little criticism there is about uh, Shepard, uh, everyone always mentions identity. That Sam Shepard, is, is, his characters are looking for identity, or they're, they're questing after identity. Yeah, I, I don't... I don't, I don't know. Nothing, 
Okay. <laughs> One out of six isn't bad. Uh, what about uh, myth, magic? Uh, Sam, Sam Shepard as the, the American mythologist. Uh, yeah, you know, when you read a lot of those reviews, I swear to God, some of them, they, they, uh, uh, my associate, Berlana Takash, does the research for Cement in our projects. And she has every review ever written on Sam Shepard. And this includes in foreign languages and everything. Mm -hmm. And what we didn't have, we called the magic theater. And they said, you got more than we do. And it's when you take the large amount of them and look at them, you see these same words reappear. Mm -hmm. And one is the myth maker. Um, and one is the element of magic. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It seems to me that those, both of those characteristics are something that has to do with the theater anyway in an ideal kind of situation if you're not looking at a realistic play and um, in the sense that you're making magic. But for the fun of it, we, we hired a magician, right, for Suicide and B-flat. And, uh, and we got to the character who played Paulette. We said, listen, we want you to learn magic tricks. You're going to open up your hand and flame's going to come out. You're going to be able to go like that and the, and the scarf's going to come out. You're going to be able to have a hat and flame will come out of there. And we tried to um, make those, that magic uh, right, you, you know, so you could see it and taste it. But, but I think that, that that's not the full answer. I think the element of the magic or the myth comes from the fact that there's an ingredient in there called mystery. And it's what we don't understand about the shepherd plays that makes them nag at us. So consequently, uh, if anything became too clear, we'd do something to fuzz it up. <laughs> you know. But, um, yeah, I know, they, I, that's why I don't read a lot of those reviews, because they, they, they say the same things a lot of times, mm -hmm. and they just pick it up from each other. Backbog Beast we read one that had to do, and it's, and the, which the guy said it was all about Vietnam, and he explained it all. Here's the American troops, here's Russia, here's Vietnam. And that's not really helpful, because it comes from a kind of intellectual point of view. And what's nice about the music is we came in from a very sensual point of view. It was immediate, it was, you could taste it. I did an interview recently for National Public Radio in which they said, why do Sam Shepard's plays always have food in them? Aren't they really all about eating food? And I thought, I don't know. Um, I guess they are, but I never thought of it that way. But I do know that food on stage is very sexy. If you eat an apple, if you eat a drippy tomato on stage, if you eat food, it's a sensual act. And Sam understands sensuality very, very well. And he understands appetites. And, um, and so I don't think he thinks about writing food scenes, but I, I do understand that he appeals to the appetites, he appeals to the eyeballs, to the sound, and then to one's own sense of taste. So that quite often you find yourself watching food happening on stage, mm. but it's an awakening of sensation more than anything else. You know. In uh, Angel City and uh, Backbog Beast, characters go through... Um, some radical transformations. This is, this is uh, something that uh, Shepard employs. It's a technique or whatever you want to call it. Well, he defines it in the published version of uh, Angel City and other plays. There's a note to the actor and a note to the musicians in which he pretty much spells out what he would like the actors to do. When we were auditioning, we would point to it and we'd say, ah, read this, <laughs> okay? <laughs> see, see what the man says? This is what we would like you to try to do. In which he said, do not attempt to to portray this character in a linear, realistic way. Or you're not going to be able to do it. But rather, you must try to approach this character much more like a Picasso painting or a jazz piece in which there's riffs on a theme. And, um, and these changes are as mysterious 
and, it's, and as, as a sudden daydream that you might have while walking down the street, and yet is real. And yet is real and as profound and as important to our lives as any kind of psychological thing. Um, and, and certain actors had trouble doing with it. We auditioned a lot of actors, and, um, and we found that most of our company were people who had some musical background, or they had worked in kind of an out you know, they had done plays of Len Jenkins or things like that. They had been out there in terms of dealing with performance art. And, um, and, and that was something we would constantly emphasize, that this is, this is closer to performance art than it is to, um, you know, a realistic play. And when we auditioned Mad Dog Blues in 1979, I'm sure we're going to do it again this year, the audition literally was perform a rock and roll song. Don't sing it. You have to do it acapulco, too. You know, there's no backups. And, um, and there were some actors who said, no, I can't do that. Or they'd sing it, but they didn't perform it, which is what we were concerned about, was the performance value, in which the only reality is the reality of the audience. Another question that people seem to be asking because of a recent interview, Sam said that... Uh, he doesn't like to end his plays. Mm. Um, it seems like a strangulation in a certain way. And yet, what happens in the plays is if you send a certain amount of emotion and energy and concentration going towards the audience, the ending actually happens out there. The, it, it arcs over the footlights, and, and the ending happens within the audience. But it's not a conclusion or a resolution, but rather it's a placement in a certain way in which the questions or the images continue. And so the end is really out there. And, and, and do you consciously direct towards that ending? I mean, with sure. that in mind like that? Um. Well, that's why I'm sitting there and, and, you know, I mean, I think directing is the greatest thing in the world. I've been, only doing, I've been doing it for about 20 years, and I still think it's a gas. You get to sit there and tell a bunch of people what to do to amuse you. I mean, it's amazing. And uh, I feel like a voyeur at times, but it's really quite exciting. But yes, my, uh, the, the, the actors were to please me. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't putting that harshly or anything like that, but they understood that that, that reality was, was very important, that they were doing it for the sake. Plus, there's things with the voice and understanding the words and doing every word is written and understanding the rhythms of it. We came across a version of the play of Suicide when it was first done here, MacArthur or whatever, manuscript. And there were some changes from the published version. We were very interested in what the nature of those changes might be we found out that they were not any line changes. They were not, except for a couple of things, no big character changes. What the changes were, were in punctuation. They had to do with rhythm. He would simply change the rhythm of some of the speeches. He'd move the periods around. Bill Coco will tell you that the first time Tooth of Crime was to be published by TDR, he sent in the script and there was no punctuation, there was rest marks. And he said, we can't do that. We need punctuation. So I said, no, no punctuation. <laughs> it holds you back, mm -hmm. you see. So consequently, he rewrites the play. As I understand, or I can see at times, what he's dealing with more is rhythm rather than, you know, word here or there, mm -hmm. or changes in the character. Mm -hmm. um, I think something also would happen is quite often... You know, there's a temptation to get rid of the blemishes. In, in the situation we found in Shepard was that if you get rid of those blemishes, what you're doing is, is destroying some of the personality of the play. So it's much better to play the blemish than to try to get rid of it. The same way as we didn't treat the music as background music, but rather we put it right up front. Said this is what it's about. It's about music. Any particular blemish come to mind? Pardon? Is there anything specific? I mean, you mentioned blemish. I mean, that you can think of. In the well, um, 
uh, I would say that uh, that in the case of Suicide and B. Platt, with the character of Niles and Paulette, um, what what we found out was you couldn't quite understand what was happening between them. There was a certain lack of clarity um, because they were speaking in conceptual, high generalized phrases. And what we did was we pushed them even further back, and we took down even more. We emphasized the mystery of what they were doing, rather than trying to illuminate it. We emphasized the mystery. Uh, it's the same thing with the violence that we find quite often in Shepard. It was rather than shying away from the violence. In fact, while Beast we ripped the guy's arm off and let the bone and the blood just, you mm-hmm. know, come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that you're cleaning it up; it's spending dirtying it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Uh, you've talked about jazz and rock and roll, um, uh, the influence of Patti Smith, uh, these sort of things. Are there any other, uh, I guess we talked a little bit about uh, transformations, any of the other, uh, oh, I don't know, themes or, or well, ideas and notions that uh, Sam Shepard is interested in as his writing all about that you'd like to talk about? Uh, well, what's kind of neat about this is these are, for the most part, directors here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I suppose part of the, what's fascinating about this is just the directing element, just the, the theater, the, the stagecraft and so which is what's a constant surprise and delight for me, um, going past all the literary considerations mm-hmm. or what might be thematic considerations, mm-hmm. um, especially in terms of casting. Um, I found that the, the casting, the actors... Uh, I, I, I'm very much a fan of the modern actor, by the way. Um, there was a time I was a little bit resistant, but I find that someone really quite special. Um, I'm a member of the generation that all has BAs. Right? Every actor you audition has a BA. And it's different from the old days when people used to tap dance their way up, right? <laughs> and, you know, the George M. Cohen style. It's a different generation. It's not good or bad. It's, it's kind of the reality. They're very quick. And also because of the demands of our profession and everything else, they know how to learn a script overnight. Because if they have a soap or film the next day, they know how to learn a script overnight, develop a character, come in with a costume, literally, in, in 10 hours. They know how to work fast. Also, it seems that they're physically uh, much more together in a sense of, I guess that's part of the whole thing of the 70s too, but I mean, they're physically in tune. And they seem to have more balls they can juggle in the air, be it music or tap, whatever the skills may be. And so in casting, I find myself much more looking at these skills and trying to employ and use those rather than, you know, how many shows you do at the Guthrie or mm-hmm. something like that. And, and also, to what degree they're aware of the pop culture in a real way. Uh, if they're familiar with the, the rock and roll culture or the, or the movie culture or whatever. The man who, could, uh, who did the lead in Backbug Beast Bait, Raul Aranis, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the reasons he got the parts was because he knew how to handle guns. I mean, he could stand there and take two guns out and move them all around and do all the stuff and put them back in. And that, and that was very important <laughs> because it helped identify this particular character. It was like a gesture or a gesture or whatever you want to call it that, that really rooted the character very, very simply and in a wonderful way because he knew guns, he knew knives. And he really knew. He was Filipino. He learned them in the Philippines. And, and, and what he knew, you could not teach in eight weeks of it, six weeks of rehearsal. And, and he could bring that kind of talent to it. The other thing is there was a very special actor I've worked with for the last seven years named Stephen Miller. I've done about ten shows with Steve. A lot of them Shepard. He's done a lot of Shepard besides with me. 
Steve's very important because, you know, you have actor directors or actor playwrights or actor producers. He's an actor designer. And, and he's very aware of how he looks visually and, and what the visual impact of what he's doing has on the audience. Uh, I had a couple of other performers who also were in the show that, that, that had that type of being able to step outside themselves and see what effect they were having without becoming involved on an emotional level, but much rather on an intellectual level. <coughs> also, we had Zivia Flumanoff, who's literally a rock and roll singer, plays clubs, and she knew how to perform. She knew how to perform, and that's how she attacked all her performances, was on a performance level. But she would tell me, she, she really didn't understand anything about acting. She never went you know, HP or the studios. Sam likes that. I have a feeling he likes that, he, he, just from the things he's directed. Although there's a respect for professionalism, too. It isn't just a bunch of kids running around, which is what's fun about all this. There was a time when Sam Shepard and other different, what I call progressive plays, were done on the second stage, right? <laughs> or it's in the experimental theater in the back. And, um, and what's, what's exhilarating or fun is when you're doing something at Syracuse Stage or Mama Anderson, which suddenly you have the money for what would be a uh, main stage production. And, and in a certain way, you can invest that type of, of support and effort and money into, into, uh, into the production and be taken in much more seriously on a much more legitimate level. And, that, and that's very liberating also. Uh, it still means that you deal with a certain simplicity that I think is kind of a mark of modern art, but, um, but still to be able to, to uh, gain that type of uh, budget is very, very, very helpful, although not necessary. Um, uh, the fun of doing something like Mad Dog Blues is literally you can take a costume box and people put on hats and things, and you can go out on stage, and as long as you got that rock and roll band, that's all you really need. That's all you really need. We had a couple of pieces of scaffolding we moved around the stage, because it's nice to have something kinetic going. And we're talking this time about using swings. But it just gets emotion. But you don't really need a lot of money to do these shows. And, um, and when we got the money, what we found, we put it into was the sound. Was, was the, to get the best possible sound, to get the best possible musicians we could get. Because that just raises it immensely. Now, when these musicians come in, again, speaking from a director's end, when the musicians came into rehearsal, Whoa, for the first week, it was like warfare. Because the actors were going, wait a minute, this stuff is fighting, this is drowning, this is so much noise, you can't hear us, what's all this going on? And, and, and it took a while until they could learn that this was lifting them up into a, a stylized sort of situation that was not style like 19th century or anything like that, but rather new style, or modern style, which is the style of the, of the performance, the concert. And once they hooked into it, it was a lot of fun. Because then they play with the musicians and What about the later plays? If we can shift a little abruptly here. Well, he wrote these family plays while he was living with Olan out in California. And now, of course, he's involved with Jessica. And involved with the largest divorce suit, I understand, in California's history. And by California standards, it must be pretty wild. Um, uh, but it doesn't surprise me that, that things like Barry Child... Yeah, curse were written at a time where he was very involved with his family. And something like Fool for Love, which has amazing obsessive behavior and uh, has to do with you know, his relationship with Jessica, or Paris, Texas, which I recently saw, um, had to deal with his relationship with his son, Jesse, in Oland. Um, I'm aware of these things, but quite frankly, I talk about them now, but I really don't deal with that a lot with the actors. 
I don't think it really helps. Maybe that by, that sort of thing. I don't know if it helps them or not. But are, are you attracted to the to the plays? Are they plays you like to direct? Sure, sure. But um, but as I say, some of it's hard to explain because it's a gut reaction, and it's, it's a case of trusting one's instincts and one's own sense of visions and, and things like that. In Angel City, there's a there's an Indian wheel that the rabbit brings in, and and he has Indian bundles that he puts in the four corners. Uh, only one's authentic, the other three are made up. And, uh, and so we talk, what the hell's an Indian bundle? I mean, really, is this a bundle they carry around stuff? So we went to the museum, and uh, the Indian museums, and we found out that they're extremely sacred. They're very, very important because of their sacred quality. In fact, the only bundle they had were from the crows. The crows were the only ones who would sell to the museum an Indian bundle. Well, any of you don't know, the crows were the ones who were custard's last stand fighting with custard. And, um, and we asked, what are inside the bundles? And she'd say, very simply, she said, visions. So what? <laughs> visions. If someone had a vision, let's say it's of an eagle, they might take an eagle's feather and put it in a bundle. Or if they had a vision of, of something, they might take an item from that and put it in a bundle. And they had their own personal bundle, and that's all it was with their visions. Although a tribe could have a vision, have a bundle, and these were visions from the elders and from certain people that were inside there. And and I think a lot of it is that the element of vision or dreaming or staring out the window for two hours, and, you know, nothing's going by, <laughs> you know, and you're just out there. It's it's part of, at least for me, part of what I did in regards to these plays. I would read them and then just daydream, literally, and come up with certain visions, and the actors would too. And then we try to find a way to put these into the play, and it was the stringing together of those visions that they made a copy in any sort of sense, rather than trying to do it from the other way, which was analyzing the play in an intellectual way. Very hard to do. Okay, we've got about uh, 35 minutes. I'd like to open up the uh, house here to ask questions. Frankly, it was, I mentioned earlier, it was, it was listening to Meatloaf one day where I don't know where all of a sudden things started to go way to, and, oh, I know what it was. I saw Billy Joel Madison Square Garden. And he came out and uh, on his entrance and, uh, and the place was jammed. Everybody was going crazy and everything else. And he came out and he had a black jacket on and he had a beer. And he came out and he looked at the audience, took up the beer, you know, and he, and he drank it. He just squirted it all over him, striking the thing. Tossed it out to the audience, and he went down to the piano, started to play a song, you know, play a song. And there's something about it that just said, "Boss." And he didn't he didn't have balding hair. It wasn't anything like that. But you know, it, it said something very clearly. 
So, so it was, that had a lot to do with it. And then I go, why can't I get that excitement that was in Madison Square Garden on the stage? Why not? So when we did it, I asked for eight follow spots. That's all the lights we wanted. We ended up with four. But it was the same, you know. I took it. I took the four follow spots. And that's how we lit the show, basically. Yeah. I'm sorry, I get off. Yeah. Um, one was the interracial casting that came And the second mm-hmm. was... Was that intentional when you choose those particular races? Was one question. And the second question was, in terms of Joe's, how much of that piece, that monologue, was from the process that you've explained about how you let it happen? How much of that was one of these single most exciting moments? Right. Can I just, by way of, in Tooth of Crime, there's a monologue that Becky Lou has. I don't know how many are familiar with that. But she comes out and basically, as written, half of her costume is um, a, a man's black jacket and with a black glove. And the other half of her costume is of a young girl. And she has a monologue in which she um, uh, it's like a first date situation or whatever. And it starts off very playful. He's trying to get between her legs or feel I'm not the type of girl, I'm not the type of girl. And then it, the situation gets out of hand. And um, and, and to, the what, to the point where he rips open her blouse and, and terrorizes this, this girl. Um, when we were in rehearsal for it the first time, one of the concerns was to take an image and to push it to its limit to see how much it'll take or how much it would hold. So, so what we found ourselves doing was saying, well, wait a minute, rather than just exposing... Uh, this lady's breasts, which I politically was not excited about or interested in doing, but yet there had to be a violation. What could be the nature of the violation, you know, without doing that? Was there something else that could happen? And so uh, what we found ourselves doing through rehearsals is that he grabs her on the back of the neck. Well, at one point he tries to lift up her dress, and you see that she has white panties on, you know, and she's pulling it down. Oh, no, 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 no. She's like 14-year-old girl. It's her first date. He grabs her behind the neck and throws her on the floor of the car and then lifts the back of her dress in which there was red panties and butt fucks her. And, uh, and she screams and she's raped in the most awful way, you know. And it was, it was taking an image and just pushing it to an extreme to see you know, what we could do with it. And, uh, and we found that it worked very, very well. And what was very important about it was that when she finished the particular monologue, she stood up. It was just for demonstration. We had to work with her not to get involved <laughs> with the sort I never saw that before. Yeah, but it was how do you somewhat get that horror across without really exploiting this particular female performer? who was more than willing to take off a pose if that was, but that's not what we were interested in. Same way, in terms of the interracial casting, this is something politically I've been in, part of my own background, uh, for a long time. Um, I don't quite agree with this general feeling that, oh, that's so 60s. I, don't, I never could understand that. But also I found out that, uh, to my mind, some of the best actors in America are black actors. And I really do believe that. Um, and, and they're easier to get in a certain way because they don't, there's not the demand for them to perform as there is for 
you know, an equivalent white male, perhaps. Um, and also they bring a lot of music and understanding to the material. Plus, if you, Shepard is the important American writer, how could you express an American sensibility without expressing the black and the Asian and the Hispanic experience? So to the crime had Hispanic and Asian and blacks in it. And, uh, and so did the rest of the Shepard things. And I know it takes a lot of people by surprise, but I, I don't think it's a big problem or anything like that. Yeah. Well, very much, very much an issue. Yeah, it was very deliberate. In fact, Suicide and Be Flat it was even more deliberate because in a certain way it's two white cops investigating uh, the black jazz world. And, um, and uh, you know, and of course, <laughs> my aunt Sheila Dabney and Peter Jay, uh, you know, they weren't cops, they were critics, right? <laughs> Same difference. <laughs> and it was like, uh, yeah, what are they doing here? Trying to explain it. She wanted to know about the interracial casting involved with Shepard. And I found that, uh, right? And, and I found that it actually aided more than it subtracted from it. And while there was an awareness, I don't think you can be blind to it, you know, when you have a black woman on stage or a white woman, uh, it wasn't colorblind. But yet, on the other hand, it wasn't a heavily emphasized thing. It's been something I've been doing for a long time. And be it Julius Caesar or Bertolt Brecht, it didn't really matter. However, with Shepard, it's, it's interesting because he's considered such an American writer. And an American writer means more than, than to my mind, uh, a white cast reflecting a lot more. Especially when you're dealing with Shepard, something you didn't ask about themes, in regards to the outlaw image, which I do find important in Shepard, which is that whole element of the outlaw, of the renegade, of, of somebody who works on the periphery of society and, and, and is able to look in at society from a different point of view. And, and that's something he embraces. He literally embraces that. Um, the outsider, the downtowner, the guy who sticks his finger up to Broadway and says, buzz off. The guy who stood up Time magazine. <laughs> they asked him to come and uh, be on the cover of Time, and he stood him up and said, hey, I don't feel like it. You know, who will not give interviews to anybody. And then an 18-year-old girl up at Harvard, <laughs> who's a freshman in a journalism class, and has an assignment, and she writes him a letter, and he gives her the interview <laughs> that appears, you know, on those little presses that they have around Boston, you know, with the mimeographic papers. There's a new magazine TCG's putting out, American Theater Magazine. Well, see, they had a commitment for a Sam Shepard interview, right? <laughs> that for their first issue, two years before, that's how they raised money, because Bob Woodruff and other people promised them an interview. They didn't have one three months beforehand, and all of a sudden they find up in Boston this mimeographed interview, and so they went and they offered her tons of money, and this freshman girl all of a sudden had her first big journalistic break. But that's Sam. That makes sense. That's Sam. He'd rather do it that way than give an interview to Time magazine. And his whole sense of, you find me, you find me, you know, he doesn't chase, you find me, has been consistent. Or, I'm not going to explain myself to you, you, you explain me to yourself. And, and that's why his home was basically downtown. You know? Whereas the case where you had to make an effort, you had to put out energy, you had to do the work to find him. And it's, it's a very, very calculated kind of thing in a certain way. And they find him. <laughs> they look for him. Any questions? Thank you.
Well, it's funny, when they first came in, they were almost like, um, you know, people when they do their first show in the theater, they're five minutes early, <laughs> and they were like super aware. Because it was strange territory, they, they were more on time, at least at the beginning, than the actors were, because they were, they didn't know. They didn't know. So consequently, they were even more attuned and more concerned about doing a good job. Plus, they were all in awe of Max, and he set the, the criteria of behavior in a certain way. There was still some times where they roar in like, you know. The, uh, the question right behind that really is, clearly you had designed the Russell period in some fashion or other. I would be interested in learning what you did, what your thinking was on it. How, literally, what, what would you do in your life? The rehearsal period fell into, I'd say, three periods, and each one of those periods was quite different. Um, for one thing, we were rehearsing three shows at the same time, and, and we found ourselves doing one show on Monday, one show on Tuesday, and one show on Wednesday. Now, I had done some festivals at the Impossible Ragtime Theater and also Columbia. Um, the Shep and Rep Festival was not the only one we did there. We did some other. And a very strange thing happens when the actor has to, uh, doesn't come into rehearsal every day. It, first of all, allows him more time for homework. And in a certain way, you just take that a little bit further, he has a responsibility to do homework. So if I, didn't, if I saw an actor on Monday and we were rehearsing that show again until Thursday, and he did the other show on a Tuesday, because they're all two shows, but he had Wednesday off, um, and that's not the off day, it's just he had it off in the tempo of things. We were expecting a certain amount of things to be brought in, be it lines or be it um, some attack or walk, you know, or, or some hat he found on the street that he'd want to show the costume designer because he liked the, you know, thing of the hat. And it became part of the makeup of it. The fact that they had time didn't work against us, but rather it worked for us. Um, some of the members of the company are rather new to this in terms of doing rap or whatever. It's a little scary. Oh, we got a couple of days off, or you know, before we do this again. And and so during the middle period, when we wanted to focus more on scenes and specific things, for example, there's in Backlog Beast Bay there's a um, conjuring scene, and and in terms of doing um, homework on voodoo, we thrust a lot of this on the two actresses. During that second period, that second third, we would then spend a whole morning, let's say, on the voodoo scene. We would break it down much more into specifics. And then it was in the final third period we were doing run-throughs. You know. and, um, and, uh, and the actors went out and they found a lot about voodoo. Not that we didn't do a certain amount of work, but they did much more than I ever anticipated uh, about it. They found out all sorts of things. And they found those days it wasn't always necessary to be working every day, eight hours a day. And that actually they liked the idea of having time to do, which is another characteristic of the modern actor. They know how to do homework. 
and, um, and, and, and so when they bring these things in, it's a case of how can you meld this with what everybody else is learning. Does that answer? I mean, it's kind of a general. No, really. <laughs> 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 in rehearsals, we come in at you know ten in the morning, and uh, and and everybody have their coffee, and you know carry on, and and uh, you know fifteen minutes of doing that type of stuff, and then we'd start and say, okay, go, to hit it, <laughs> you know, and um, and then if we ran into problems, we'd stop and go over things. Um, there's an ancient city. There's a tremendous amount of energy that needed to be uh, expanded. Also, so we try to pace it to a certain way. They wouldn't be exhausted. Yet they were exhausted when they left. They're very, very tired. Just simply from all the sound in the room and the language and just the energy, literal energy that they have to put out to, to just be able to do that. The character of Rabbit. We knew that uh, in previous productions of this and that that he came in dressed as one of those. Uh, Myths, the cowboys, you know, the, the critics, the, oh yeah, there's another shepherd cowboy myth thing, you know. And back in certain productions, he came in with a uh, saddle and dumped it, you know, and everything else. And in our particular production, we didn't attack it that way at all. He was a worker, came in with a, a you know, green overalls, like he'd been working on a car or something. And he was an intellectual, you know, he had glasses on and things, and, and he had a stutter. Now that stutter came about because we were asking all of the actors to find the rhythm of their character. Or if they were a character, what kind of instrument they be, or whatever. So consequently, became the stutter, who learned it from the bebop. And he introduced a whole rhythmic, a percussive thing into his speaking. Actually, that answers my question. And so we encouraged that. We encouraged it to a point, and then he'd have to do a transformation, and drop that completely, and then speak like the devil, or speak like Richard Burton. And then, re- and then that was the trick too was not to continue any of those lines constantly you know no matter what it was just about the time that, you know then we'd snap it out and say okay let's do something different let's do it all the other way so basically you're asking an actor to do uh, to find something that is as theatrical or as big as what a jazz or a rock band is but it has to be organic and also to his appreciation of life, how he sees things and everything else. I didn't try to use the word big, because that leads to shouting and yelling and stuff like that. That really isn't what we're talking about. But it's just that if there's a criteria for judgment, it's out there, it's not in here. You know? And yet one brings your own sensibilities and semantics and everything else to what you're doing. You know? um, with Suicide Be Flat, the character of Louis and Pablo, I had seen about five productions of this show. And they and read all of the reviews, okay, or most of them. They didn't even read them, but they'd hear about them. And they'd always say, it's like the Marx Brothers. It's like the Marx Brothers. It's like Harpo and Zeppo, constantly. They kept saying that. And I went to see, I had to do a lecture out at uh, Hofstra, and they had a production of Suicide. And the guys, the two detectives came in, and they looked like um, Marx Brothers. And that was exactly what they didn't want them to do, that they first had to be cops. So we gave them guns, we gave them badges, we gave them black suits, we gave them white shirts, we gave them ties. And we showed them movies from the 50s, the early 50s. The film, how does that pronounce? Film or whatever, that, that, that style. Film one. Film one, right. And, um, and, and that, was, that was sort of 
that, that's what we want in their head. Or we have them read Jim Thompson books or the existentialists from the French existentialists, you know, things like that. And then build the comedy, rather, after they had established their detectives with a particular philosophical point of view and an attitude towards their work, and then let the comedy come from on top of that rather than going right for the throat on the comedy, which is where the critics and the reviewers can really screw you up. They can really screw you up because they're looking at the result, you know. Or they bring their own kind of sensibility to it. And they'd like it to be a comedy. And it's easier to digest. You know, rather than a detective seriously considering suicide. Okay. There's a question here? This is directed, I don't know how, I mean, I've done a lot of different shows and and that includes the fact that when I first came to town, I worked at Hanna-Barbera and was doing Yogi Bear shows, you know, with big costumes and stuff like this. And <laughs> Murder Mysteries in Bay Ridge and, you know, and the classics at some university. Uh, I, 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 on a personal level, don't know quite what to say, except that I know that, that doing uh, these particular plays means a lot to me and um, it fulfills me in ways that I can't really put a price tag on or, or even can't quite articulate. But um, they've become rather important. And I find that it affects the other work because, because what happens is that the attitude towards the state becomes much more playful. And, um, and, and it's very healthy. Or at least I found it. No, all I can play is the radio. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> no, no, not at all. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about thinking that went into selection of the particular pieces of Jeffrey's death? Sure. It, um, um, I thought I had mentioned that earlier, but maybe I didn't articulate it quite right. When I was doing the, the um, rock and roll series, Shep and Rep Rock and Roll Theater, we did, um, we did the plays that were basically from the rock and roll period. Uh, Mad Dog Blues, Melodum Play, Tooth, they were all written within a certain framework of time. And, and then when um, a couple of years, you know, when Ellen suggested that uh, I form a new group, and uh, of course she loves festivals, and we talked about that, I, I at that time, five years had gone by, and I had found that my own tastes had shifted to jazz. And, um, and I found that there was a period of Sam's work in which he also had moved from rock to jazz. And, and that was this period that Suicide and Be Flat and Angel City were written in. So those were the first two plays. Not only that, but, but in his instructions to the actors, he said, you should be like a jazz musician. And his in instructions to the, uh, to the musicians, he was saying, well, this person should play like Ornette Coleman, this person should... I didn't even know what Ornette Coleman was five years ago, but now I had some framework to put it in. Some of this had to do because uh, several years ago I, I did some plays of Amiri Baracas, and uh, who used to go to name Leroy Jones, and he just taught me a lot about jazz and introduced me to a lot of people, and I did an opera of his called Money that was done with the Cool Jazz Festival. And, and I got to know Chico Freeman and and Sheila Jordan and these people and go to the clubs and, and, and start to talk with them and meet with them and see that there was a different sensibility. When I was speaking with the set designer, I said, you know, with rock and roll, you have that forward thrust. There's something very aggressive and something very male about it. But with jazz, it's much subtler. It's, it's something more feminine about it. It's more that's seductive and much more complicated. 
And so when we did To the Crime, we had that stage coming right out of the audience. And when we did these particular plays, we had a swoop that drew people in. It was much more circular. You know. So it was my own perception of the difference between those two types of music and the finding that, that, that this, these two plays were written within six months of each other and at a certain period of his time in which he had given up Patti Smith, given up rock and roll, and that sort of thing. Backball had been written in that earlier period, but it dealt with Cajun blues, la-la music. And that's quite different uh, from, uh, I mean, that's, that's early B.B. King. This is rock and roll done with an accordion. You know, blues done with an accordion. It's really quite special and specific. When we were in rehearsal, uh, Max would quite often yell at the musicians and say, no, you have to play this particular music exactly or else you dilute the integrity of the music because it's so specific. And yet it's, it, it is the forerunner of rock and roll. It's the forerunner of, of jazz as we know it now. Where in Angel City, they had much more freedom. They had much more freedom to play. So he took the three plays and he said, okay, backlog is blues, it's Cajun, you know. And, and Suicide in B-flat, he had a feeling that it, it was more like the jazz of the 50s. And, and with Angel City, we were concerned about something that was a modern, like Cecil Taylor, you know, and things like that. And much more modern avant-garde jazz. So we divided the three plays into a kind of a progression of jazz in a certain way. And, and then for other different reasons, Backbog found its way in, into the three. What's interesting is when uh, we were putting this whole deal together, it took a year to pull out, Syracuse Stage said um, they were very interested, in fact, until they read Backbog, and they said, it's not a good play. It's just dramaturgically, it's not a good play. And, um, and Ellen was vehement. I mean, she said, we must do that play because she's from Louisiana, and she said, I want it because of the music and the voodoo. And so we sent a tape up of uh, Clifford Chenet and things like that, and we sent it up to them. And so when they heard the music, they went, oh yeah, now I understand how the play works. It, and it was just that easy. Um, and also, the more we told them about the, the use of voodoo that we plan to use. So. <laughs> so how are we doing, Chief? Uh, we're doing all right. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, you said you're going to do that for the second time? Right. Have you done any of the other plays? Uh, we did Tooth of Crime. I did in '79 and also in '83. And Cowboy Mouth we did uh, in '79. Then I went to Europe, '80 or '81, and then it played again in '82 at the Wonder Horse. Um, the European trip was something else because when we went there, they didn't know who Sam Shepard was, so the billing was Patty Smith with Sam Shepard. <laughs> and uh, we opened in Berlin, and then the person who booked us booked us into some rock clubs. So we're, I wasn't there, but the show was in Freiburg, and the place was jammed. I don't know if any have done any shows in Europe, but the Germans like to applaud. You know, they can clap along with things. They're having a good time. And uh, <laughs> the jazz musicians go a little bit nuts because they like that. They like rock. They, they wanted to clap along. So they were playing in the bar, you know, in these clubs. And they had two shows. And the first show didn't want to leave. They were having such a good time. And the second show wanted to get in. So they called the cops. And the cops came. And some bottles got thrown. And they're all of a sudden it turns into a police riot. And all this stuff is happening. And my actor's on a stage with microphones trying to quiet everybody down. And, and they had a riot in Freiburg. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I hear about it. I go, oh, my God, what happened? Well, you know what happened. It got written up by uh, a Hoyt, uh, Hoyt, what's the German magazine? Hoyt, uh, yeah. right. Theta Hoyt wrote it all up. I won an award from the International Theater Institute. <laughs> and it became a, a whole, you know, the scandal became a big hit. <laughs> Which is something like what happened up in Syracuse, too. I mean, that first couple of days, it was frightening. I mean, everybody was going crazy because of the masses. I mean, you have like 150 people standing up and, and screaming in the lobby and pointing at that stage saying, that is, is it necessary? Is that necessary? <laughs> you know, those were the scary times. <laughs> That's what's kind of scary about it all. <laughs> change, uh, it's a gro- it's all evolutionary process. Well, I'll tell you something. Quite often, I get hired as a concept director, right? And um, <laughs> and I tell them, you know, and they, so the first day of rehearsal, like an intar, Max Ferris says, "So, what's your concept?" I said, "I have no idea." Uh, because in a lot of ways, I believe concept is a very fluid thing, and it's actually at its best when it's in motion. And I don't really quite understand it until after the show opens, um, rather than predetermining one. Usually it starts with visions or something. And the concept is kind of what you write down afterwards when you're filling out the grant forms. But it's really very liquid, very fluid, you know, it, it, and, and it keeps moving. What you start to do is develop a certain criteria of judgment, you know, what what fits and what doesn't fit. And then later on, the concept kind of comes together. So, so in that sense, perceptions have changed. I, I understand to the crime much more after having done it a number of times than I did when I started out. You know. I try to not use the word concept, and uh, I, mean, I really don't. And in terms of stroking, I'm not, I don't give away free compliments in that sense either. Uh, but see, I don't believe that an actor needs to understand a part intellectually. And I don't mean this badly, um, but if understanding a part intellectually was necessary to be a good actor, uh, directors would be good actors, teachers would be good actors, and critics would have us all be, right? <laughs> they have to understand it from the heart. And what I look for from an actor is courage. I think it's the most important thing any actor has to have is courage. I'm not an actor. I, I, I don't act. I, I just don't do it. And I don't quite understand. I, don't, I never take acting lessons or anything like that. So I don't quite understand what they do on one hand. But on the other hand, I do know there's a tremendous amount of courage involved in acting. And that's what I respect. And, um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of building that in a certain way. But it's not Newt Rockman time per se. It's just as I've gotten older too, I just pick my words a little bit more carefully and see if I can make sure that they're worrying about the right problem instead of the wrong problem. Because they can, they can worry about the wrong problem sometimes. We had one actor who was up till four in the morning, you know, and I said, what was wrong, Raul? What's wrong? We opened in two days. And he said, I didn't get any sleep last night. I didn't get any sleep last night. I said, what's wrong? He says, this wig. I can't stand this wig. Now, this is the wig he asked for, right? <laughs> this is the wig he had to have. 
He says, I can't wear the wig. I can't wear the wig. I said, so don't wear the wig. He said, I don't have to wear the wig. I said, no. You're in the wig. He said, oh, thank God. You know, and for a couple of days, that was what was on his head. But he didn't, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, uh, it's been used, but um, and a lot of time in a ritualistic way. But what we're talking about is very specifically a, a modern American drama, and and for for many different reasons, um, it, it it doesn't seem to be as as an evidence in a play of Tennessee Williams or Arthur Miller as it does with Sam Shepard. Not always when there's just a musician on stage, but we have somebody who is a was a musician, a drummer, and his father was a drummer. And that was part of his makeup before he was a playwright. So it's a certain sensibility that he brought to the stage. And, uh, and it's that sensibility and, and that attitude that, that, as I say, informs his productions, even if there's not a musician in sight. Um, so consequently, in Fool for Love, it didn't surprise me at all that he took a bass drum and put it behind the door. So when the doors slam, they have that extra sound of resonance, you know? It's something he would think of. He would know to put a drum behind a door. How many of us would think of that? I mean, really, to put a drum behind a door so when you slam it, it has that sound, a certain sound to it. And when he did the show out at the Magic, he had, he had a, at the Magic Theater, he had buzzers or wires going to every one of the chairs so that he could zzz the audience at one point in the show. <laughs> I, I have a flashlight. Orson Welles did it in uh, Joe S. Corp. The three of WPA, he, he used lights coming from underneath mm-hmm. at a given cue. I mean, I don't think that's so far out of the record. Fine. No, no. Possible? No. And a lot of the stuff, by the way, also has antecedents, not only from Orson Welles, but also in the atmosphere of the 60s from Tom O'Hargan and many of the <laughs> and yet he, he embraces a lot, of, a lot of what we call tricks, but it's knowledge of the stage. It's just simply knowledge of the stage. And in that sense, Mad Dog Blues to me is like Midsummer's Night Dream. You know, if we do it like swings, you know, support of Peter Brook style, I have no problem with that. And in fact, and, and that's, what's, that's what's kind of nice about it, because you can bring what you've learned from other people to it, and it fits. The rubber band is very, very big. By, by in and itself, they're not, perhaps not the novel, but it's, it's a cumulative weight and, and the total embracing of the theatrics of the theater that, uh, that I find so exciting. There's no attempt for these plays to be transferred to TV or film, although they might be. In fact, there seems to be a defiance of that. And we all know theater loves theater. <laughs> theater loves theatrics. And, and, and it's Sam's love of, of theatrics itself, that uh, be it from here, there, from wherever, that infuses those plays. It's like, I find, uh, I've done O'Neill and I've done Shepard, I find them very similar, especially when it comes to the monologues. Tremendous amount of passion things, yeah.
I don't, I, I don't know if it's as much as craft as a sensibility. A sensibility seems to. Mm-hmm. To what? Did everyone hear the question? No. No. He said a number of times. Um, that uh, and when it comes, in fact, that's that a meaning. What, as soon as you get a meaning, you have a pigeonholed kind of thing. This equals this, and 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 so consequently, that type of meaning is, is in fact not what he's after. Rather, that the theater event is an experience, as complicated and as mysterious, and sometimes as meaningful as life. That that it is a dialogue that is going on, the same as we're having a dialogue now, rather than an audience judging a piece of theater to see whether or not they like it or don't like it and give their applause. That, and, and that's not what he's after, is the audience's approval. What he's after is a very sophisticated um, uh, dialogue. And also, he's made it very clear that he doesn't really do these plays for any reason except that he has to. He doesn't understand why he's writing, except he has to write them. He has to. Change in a very large way. In the sense that the audience, let me say it this way, if you see some of these actors doing some of these things on stage and you say to yourself, that's, you know how you can sit there and say, that's like me. I understand that. That's part of my system that, that teaches me something about myself. There's something about the human condition. I identify with that. There's another type of reaction which is, oh my God, did you see that on stage? I've never seen anything like that before in my life. That's incredible. What are those people doing? And oh, and that enlarges the sense of possibilities within the world. And if they can do that on stage, God knows what I might be able to do in, in my life or in my thinking. And that's what can frighten certain people, but that's also what's intoxicating and invigorating, that the stage is much bigger than, than we ever thought it could be, and that the change comes about in a real way, not by saying you must change, but rather characters are changing before our very eyes. There's a woman who's Miss Schoons in Angel City. She comes out and you think, she, oh, I know her. She's a ditzy secretary. Bang, in the second act, she's a nun. It's the same character. It's the exact same character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I would say that's perhaps the operative word that we're talking about here, is freedom. We have time for one more question? Yeah. Sure. Yes. I, I did a jazz opera, as I mentioned earlier. And, um, and, um, but again, it's what type of opera? Yeah, what type of opera? Because, uh, in that sense, a lot of opera that's around today is corrupt and, you know, it's pretty old fashioned. And, and a lot of money spent on bourgeois values that really don't mean anything. I was quite taken with Peter Brooks' thing last year. I know a lot of people hated it, but, but I found that very liberating in some of the Pardon? Pardon? Right. And, the, and those forces. But as I say, maybe it's again my own age or youth or whatever, but I'm looking forward to the theater of the 21st century. I just keep thinking about that. What are we going to be doing? We can't be doing the same thing we're doing now. <laughs> I mean, we really, really can't. And, and, and the best thing theater has going for it is its own theatricality. And, um, and so consequently, the further away we move from the naturalistic television play, which they do much better. I mean, film does much better than we do anyway. I think the more 
chance we have of being as dominant a form in the 21st century as music is in the 20th century, which is in our point. I think music is the dominant form of art in the 20th century. So, that. so we end up with music again. Right. Good. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. Visit us on the web at www.ssdc.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.